Peace be upon you. If someone was to read the Quran, one of the impressions they may get is that this Quran is addressed exclusively to the Arab people. And the reality couldn't be further from the truth. In 6852, it reads, it is in fact a message to the world. And in Surah 38, verse 87, it says, this is a reminder for the world, meaning this Quran, this message is for the entire human population. It's not exclusively for the Arabs. God just happened to choose that language for specific reasons when delivering this scripture. And anyone who's sincere would be able to read this Quran and recognize it as if they recognize their own children. And when you count the number of times that the Arabs are specifically mentioned in the Quran and addressed, there's only about nine occurrences of that. And most of these are not in a flattering light. The group that's singled out and mentioned the most frequently in the Quran is that of the children of Israel. And there's a specific reason for that. And you can see this when you look at the number of times that certain prophets are mentioned in the Quran, there's a similar phenomenon. Muhammad, the one who received this Quran into his heart, he is only mentioned by name four times in the entire Quran. Jesus and Adam are each mentioned 25 times in the Quran. And Abraham, who God calls one of his beloved friends, is mentioned 69 times in the Quran. But the prophet that's mentioned the most frequently in the entire Quran is Moses, who has about 136 mentions in the Quran. And there's a reason that the children of Israel are cited the most often, addressed the most often in the Quran, and that their prophet, Moses, is also addressed the most. One of it is the fact that we have a huge lesson to learn from their history, but also God addresses the children of Israel very early in the Quran. In Surah 2, verse 40, it reads, O children of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed upon you, and fulfill your part of the covenant, that I fulfill my part of the covenant, and reverence me. You shall believe in what I have revealed herein, confirming what you have. Do not be the first to reject it. Do not trade away my revelations for a cheap price, and observe me. Do not confound the truth with falsehood, nor shall you conceal the truth knowingly. God knew that the children of Israel are going to have a repulsion towards the Quran, God's final scripture to the human race, because of the language that it was presented in, Arab. The fact that the children of Israel, many of them believe that Ishmael, Abraham's son, was an illegitimate son, and same thing with his lineage. So when God chose the Arabs to provide the final scripture to one of them, this was automatically a no-go for a lot of the children of Israel. And God is addressing them personally and saying, put your biases aside, put your prejudice aside, and listen to what God, the Lord of the universe, is trying to tell you. And it continues in 247, it says, O children of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed upon you, and that I blessed you more than any other people. Beware of the day when no soul can avail another soul, no intercession will be accepted, no ransom can be paid, nor can anyone be helped. Now, God blessed the children of Israel so much because he sent so many prophets and messengers to this one group, delivering them scripture in their own language. And this comes with a huge responsibility. And now God is sending someone that they consider an illegitimate offspring, Gentiles, uh, the Arabs, to come and deliver God's final scripture. And it reminds me of what God did with Moses. Moses had a speech impediment, and this made him insecure in delivering the message, but God strengthened his heart. But this was a test for Pharaoh, Pharaoh who had the upper hand. He would hear Moses, and he would 
couldn't get past the fact that he claimed that Moses could hardly speak, that this was a stumbling block from him from accepting his message. As if Moses came from a prominent uh, group that spoke eloquently, this would uh, convince Pharaoh it's not. It just shows that he had no sincerity. And it continues in 249, it says, Recall that we saved you from Pharaoh's people who inflicted upon you the worst persecution, slaying your sons and sparing your daughters. That was an exacting test from your Lord. Recall that we parted the sea for you. We saved you and drowned Pharaoh's people before your eyes. Yet when we summoned Moses for 40 nights, you worshiped the calf in his absence and turned wicked. Still, we pardon you thereafter that you may be appreciative. Recall that we gave Moses scripture in the statute book that you may be guided. God provided so many blessings to the children of Israel, and now he's addressing them straightforward directly in the Quran, the final scripture to humankind. Now what's interesting about the Quran is that you would expect this being the final scripture, a message to the entire world, to the entire human population, that one of the prominent themes in the Quran is that we have absolute unity among all of believers irrespective of what we call our faith, that we call ourselves Christians, Jewish, Muslim, it doesn't matter. And this repeated prohibition in the Quran to make any distinction among God's messengers. If the object of worship is one and the same, there will be absolute unity among all the believers. It's the human factor, either the devotion or the prejudice towards certain ethnicities, groups, tribes, uh, communities that repulses people from the right path. We have to be committed to God alone. The vessel that God chooses to deliver a message from any individual, from any community, from any ethnicity, it's irrelevant. What matters to us is the message. And the fact that God chose this language to provide his message should not be reason for us to write off the Quran and say, I'm not going to follow it. And if we do, we're exposing what's in our hearts. A guided believer is devoted to God alone and rejoices in seeing any other believer who is devoted to God alone, irrespective, again, of what they call their faith. The name is irrelevant. What matters is the description of what they do. In Surah 262 and 569, we read, Surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, the converts, anyone who, one, believes in God, two, believes in the last day, and three, leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear nor will they grieve. And God is saying if anyone, irrespective of what ethnicity they are, what background they came from, what religion they uh, ascribe to, if they follow these three commandments to believe in God, believe in the last day, and lead a righteous life, then they are guaranteed never to fear, never to grieve. These, this is the minimum requirement. And in the Quran, God addresses the Torah and the gospel and realize, you know, acknowledges that this is brought uh, guidance and light for its people. But it continues in 548 in saying that the Quran is the ultimate reference. It says, then we reveal to you this scripture truthfully, confirming previous scriptures and superseding them. You shall rule among them in accordance with God's revelations. Do not follow their wishes if they differ from the truth that has come to you. For each of you, we have decreed laws and different rights. Had God willed, he could have made you one congregation, but he thus puts you to the test through the revelations he has given each of you. You shall compete in righteousness to God as your final destiny, all of you. Then he will inform you of everything you had disputed. So part of the reason that the Quran is considered the final scripture, that it supersedes the previous scriptures, that it confirms what is written in the previous scriptures of the identity of the prophets, the messengers, their miracles, their message, is because the Quran has been divinely preserved through the mathematical structure of the Quran. 
In previous episodes, we talked about the Quran's uh, mathematical structure, and it revolves around the number 19. And in Surah 74, verse 30, it says, over is 19. This surah is entitled Al-Mudathir, which is the hidden secret. And God tells us there's five reasons for this math, uh, the number 19. The first one is to disturb the disbelievers. But the second one is to convince the Christians and Jews that this is a divine scripture. And this God calls one of the great miracles a warning to the human race. And it's to allow Christians and Jews to look at the scripture and acknowledge that this was written by the Lord of the universe. Now, what's interesting is a similar phenomenon was found in the Jewish scriptures. In 46.10, it reads, Proclaim what if it is from God, and you disbelieve in it. A witness from the children of Israel has borne witness to a similar phenomenon, and he has believed, while you have turned too arrogant to believe, God does not guide the wicked. And this individual from the children of Israel, who's borne witness to a similar phenomenon, is Rabbi Judah the Pious. In the following quotation from Studies in Jewish Mysticism, we read, The people and these are the uh, Jews in France, made it a custom to add in the morning prayer the words, Ashri Tami Darik, blessed are those who walk the righteous way. And a rabbi, the pious of blessed memory, wrote, they were completely and utterly wrong. It is all gross falsehood, because there are only 19 times the holy name is mentioned in the portion of the morning prayer. And similarly, you find the word Elohim 19 times in the prescope of Vahela Shemot. Similarly, you find that the Israel were called sons 19 times, and there are many other examples. All these sets of 19 are intricately intertwined, and they contain secrets and esoteric meanings, which are contained in more than eight large volumes. Furthermore, in this section, there are 152 19 times 8 words. So, this is a phenomenon that the children of Israel, Rabbi Judah the Pious, has acknowledged in their own scripture, in their morning prayer, that the frequency of these key words occur in multiples of 19, and this is very similar to what we see in the Quran. Now, that being said, the hope of this is to bring those who believe, who are looking for the truth, to realize that this Quran is a divine scripture. It's the final scripture. It's directed towards the children of Israel and all of the human population. Now, what draws the Christians and Jews all together is one common uh, belief that we stem from the religion of Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac became the lineage of the children of Israel, while Ishmael became the lineage of the Arabs. And what's interesting is in 2135, it says, They said you have to be Jewish or Christian to be guided. Say, we followed the religion of Abraham, monotheism. He never was an idol worshiper. The fact that we believe, we all believe we follow the religion of Abraham means that we should rush towards this religion, that we should put aside these petty biases of calling ourselves Christians, Jews, Muslims. It's irrelevant. What matters is that we're monotheists. We worship God alone. In 2.136, it reads, we uh, say we believe in God and what was sent down to us and what was sent down to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the patriarchs, and what was given to Moses and Jesus and all the prophets from their Lord. We make no distinction among any of them. To him alone we are submitters. This term, submitters, what does it mean? It's a description of what we do. The word Islam means submission. The word Muslim means submitter. What's fascinating is that they've taken these words, these descriptions of what we've done, and they preserve the Arabic term in different languages. But this has no meaning. The only true meaning is the fact that you submit wholeheartedly to God alone. And this transcends what we call ourselves as far as Christians, Jews, Muslim, 
It's a description of what we do. And this expression came from Abraham himself. In 2278, it says, You shall strive for the cause of God as you should strive for his cause. He has chosen you and has placed no hardship on you in practicing your religion, the religion of your father Abraham. He is the one who named you submitters originally. So he is the one who coined this term, who took this description of what we did and labeled us that. But again, it doesn't make sense if you don't translate the word. And we see in 16.123 that Muhammad was commanded to follow the religion of Abraham. It says, then we inspired you, Muhammad, to follow the religion of Abraham, the monotheist. He never was an idol worshiper. Meaning that the religious practices of the Quran, instituted in the Quran, are identical to the religious practices practiced by Abraham. Now what's fascinating is the fact that the Shahada, the first commandment, this is the unifying factor for all of God's religion, that there is no other God beside God. Traditional Muslims today have added to that. And they say, and I bear witness that Muhammad is a messenger of God. Now this is erroneous on so many levels. For one, we can't bear witness to something we did not see with our own eyes. And we see this example in the Quran. Two is that we're making a distinction among God's messengers. And then three is the fact that Abraham lived thousands of years prior to Prophet Muhammad. If we were to do our Salat exactly like Abraham, our Shahada exactly like Abraham, how could Abraham possibly have mentioned Muhammad's name who lives thousands of years after him? It makes no sense. And Abraham is the one who delivered to us the contact prayer. One of the biggest blessings that God has provided a feast for our souls, something that five times a day we can make contact with our Creator. In 2173, it says, We made them imams who guided in accordance with our commandments, and we taught them how to work righteousness and how to observe the contact per salat and the obligatory charity zakat to us, their devoted worshipers. And we see that every prophet and messenger after Abraham performed the salat. We have the children of Israel doing the Salat in Surah 5, verse 12. We have Moses and Aaron performing the Salat in Surah 10, verse 87. Jesus is commanded to do the Salat, to give his zakat in Surah 19, verse 31. And after that, unfortunately, they lost the Salat. This beautiful gift that God presented to his beloved friend Abraham, they lost it. In 1959, it says, after them, he substituted generations who lost the contact prayer salat and pursued their lust they will suffer the consequences and this is what it came down to is the fact that they lost this precious gift that god has provided and who would be more rejoiceful to realize that you can reclaim this gift by accepting the quran by following the quran by worshiping god alone you can reclaim this gift irrespective of what you call yourself to be able to make contact with your creator five times a day to replenish your soul, to grow and develop your soul. In 2.253, we read that all the messengers came delivering the same message, but it's the human factor that divides us. It says, these messengers, we bless some of them more than others. For example, God spoke to one, and we raised some of them to higher ranks. And we gave Jesus, the Son of Mary, profound miracles and supported him with the Holy Spirit. Had God willed, their followers would not have fought with each other after the clear proofs had come to them. Instead, they disputed among themselves. Some of them believed, some of them disbelieved, and God willed they would not have fought. Everything is in accordance with God's will. And this is very similar to what happened to Satan. Is God told Satan to prostrate before Adam. The commandment came from God, and Satan refused to follow that commandment because he believed he's better than Adam. He said, I'm not going to prostrate before him. You made me from fire. You made him from clay. I'm better than he. 
Now, God has presented his final scripture, and he chose the Arabic language to deliver this message. And if someone's going to be repulsed by this, by that mere fact that this is written in Arabic, it shows that they're insincere, that they're arrogant, that they don't want to follow God alone, that they're more concerned about the superficial, the vanity aspects, than they are about the core message of what's written in the Quran. And God did a similar test for the Arabs at the time of Prophet Muhammad. He had Muhammad momentarily change the direction of Ibla from the focal point of the Kaaba to Jerusalem to expose those who were falling again with impure hearts, who had prejudice, who had bigotry, who had bias, to expose them, just like he did towards Satan. And this is in Surah 2, verse 142 through 145, we read about the change in the direction of the Vibla. And it continues in 144, it says, We have seen you turning your face about the sky, searching for the right direction. We now assign a Ghibla. This is the direction one faces during their contact prayer, their Salat. And it says, That is pleasing to you. Henceforth, you shall turn your face towards the sacred masjid, wherever you may be. All of you shall turn your faces towards it. Those who received the previous scripture know that this is the truth from their Lord. God is never unaware of anything they do. This focal point, this house of God that Abraham established as a shrine to God, this is the unifying factor for all Christians, Jews, and Muslims. But again, people have lost this aspect. Why? Multiple reasons. One is the Arabs have kept out other religions from being able to practice at the Kaaba, to worship God. This is supposed to be the unifying factor, what brings us together. And... Um, we see that Abraham was the one who built the Kaaba. In 22.26, it says, We appointed Abraham to establish the shrine. You shall not idolize any other god beside me and purify my shrine for those who visit it, those who live near, and those who bow and prostrate, and proclaim that the people shall observe Hajj pilgrimage. They will come to you walking or riding on various exhausted means of transportation. They will come from the farthest locations. In 2.125 we read, We have rendered the shrine, the Kaaba, a focal point for the people and a safe sanctuary. You may use Abraham's shrine as a prayer house. We commissioned Abraham and Ishmael, You shall purify my house for those who visit, those who live there, and those who bow and prostrate. Now, if this is such a pivotal aspect of the religion of God, why do we not see this blatantly written in the previous scriptures? Now, you have to dig, but it's there. And one of the references is Mecca before it was called Mecca. The ancient name of Mecca was Becca. And we see this written in Surah 3, verse 95, where it says, Say, God has proclaimed the truth. You shall follow the religion of monotheism, uh, Abraham's religion. He never was an idolater. The most important shrine established for the people is the one in Becca. Notice that God is using this ancient term, Becca. And it continues, a blessed beacon for all the people. In it are clear signs, the station of Abraham. Anyone who enters it shall be granted safe passage. The people owe it to God that they shall observe Hajj to the shrine when they can afford it. As for those who disbelieve, God does not need anyone. Now what's interesting is that we have documented proof that this bias, this prejudice towards anything related to the Arabs has been for the most part scrubbed out of the previous scriptures. And except they overlooked this aspect of the word Becca. In Psalm 84, verse 4 through 7, we see the same reference in the concept of pilgrimage to Becca. It says, How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. 
Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, as they pass through the valley of Becca. They make it a place of springs, even the autumn rain covers with pools. They go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. So it's acknowledging in these verses that there are individuals who go to God's house, that they are on their pilgrimage to the valley of Becca. The same word that's used in Surah 3 verse 95, the old word for the name Mecca. Now how awesome is that, that we're seeing that despite their efforts, they weren't able to hide the truth. And the, the, the recipients of the previous scripture who study this know this. They try to make claims that this is a different place, but it's not. they know it's not. Another reference to Hajj can be seen in Exodus 5.1. And what's interesting, again, what they try to do is they try to scrub out these references to Abraham's shrine, despite the fact that they believe they are following the religion of Abraham because of the association with the Arabs. Exodus 5.1 reads, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says, Let my people go, so they may hold fast a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, this word festival in the original Hebrew is hug. Hug is exactly synonymous to the word hajj. It means to make a pilgrimage or to make a pilgrim's feast. Now, why is that so important? It's because Moses is asking Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go so they can perform a pilgrimage. And it says in the wilderness. This word wilderness, if you actually look, midbar in Hebrew, means a desert. Now, why is that significant? It's because, again, they're trying to eliminate these aspects that show that the children of Israel... That, the, uh, that Moses, that Aaron, that they performed this ritualistic practice of Salat, of making pilgrimage to Hajj. And the word Hag also means a festival sacrifice. Now, why is that important? Is because during Hajj, you perform an animal sacrifice to God to praise God for providing you with livestock. In 2236, says, the animal offerings are among the rites decreed by God for your own good. You shall mention God's name on them while they are standing in line. Once they are offered for sacrifice, you shall eat therefrom and feed the poor and the needy. This is why we subdued them for you, that you may show your appreciation. The context of this is Hajj. Surah 22 is entitled Hajj, Pilgrimage. And what's fascinating is if you continue reading Exodus, so we read Exodus 5.1, Exodus 5.2, it continues, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. They said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness. And again, this word wilderness is desert. To offer sacrifice to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. So you're seeing this this comparison between Moses' request and what we see with Hajj. And why is it important that it says, you know, they translate it to wilderness, but if you actually look at the Hebrew, it also means the word desert. Because in Numbers 1.1 1, 1 and one nineteen, it says, the, And the Lord God spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. And it says, As the Lord commanded Moses, so did he number them in the wilderness of Sinai. And it's actually in the desert of Sinai, because there's a big debate as far as where is Mount Sinai. No one knows for sure. There's about over a dozen different locations that people theorize. But one of the ones that has a lot of credibility is in a documentary entitled The Mountain of Fire, where uh, some uh, discoverers claim that it's in uh, Saudi Arabia, that it's in Jebel al-Awaz. And um, 
The significance of this is that this falls into where is uh, used to be Midian. And we know for a fact that uh, Moses, when he fled Egypt, that's exactly where he resided, where he met Jethro or Shweb in the Quran. And in 2040, it says, you stayed years with the people of Midian. And in 28:22 and 23, it reads, as he traveled towards Midian, he said, may my Lord guide me in the right path when he reached Midian's water. So Moses went to Midian, and this is where he met uh, his uh, wife, um, and he resided there for years. And what's interesting is that when Moses was offered one of the two, uh, Jethro's daughters, the request was that he perform pilgrimage with them for eight years, eight pilgrimages, meaning that he was very familiar with the Hajj pilgrimage. And again, this is things that are trying to be subdued. Now, what else is fascinating is this word hug. There's a primitive root of it. So hug is the uh, Hebrew for hajj. The primitive root means to circle or to draw a circle. Now, why is that significant? It's because when you go to perform hajj, you make seven circles around the Kaaba, the focal point, the shrine that Abraham established for God. Now, when Jews pray three times a day, what they wear is called a phylactery. And what a phylactery is, it's a black cube that resembles just like the Kaaba. They put one of the cubes on their head. They wrap it around the forehead to be close to their thoughts. The other one is wrapped seven times around the left arm and has a box that looks just like the Kaaba pointed at the heart. Now, this word, hug, because it means circle, and they circle the, the phylactery around their arm seven times, is symbolic to what the Muslims do, the submitters do, who go perform Hajj, who walk around the Kaaba seven times. Now, all this is to show us, is to enlighten us, to show that, look, these religions are one and the same. If our focus is to worship God alone, we should put our prejudice, our bias aside and go towards the truth. Hajj pilgrimage, the Salat, the contact prayer, these are huge gifts from God. And the children of Israel should be overjoyed, should be weeping to realize that God has sent a final scripture that has been perfectly preserved. Every letter, every word is directly from the Creator, and it clarifies matters for them. In 17.107-110 through 110, it reads, Proclaim, Believe in it or do not believe in it. Those who possess knowledge from the previous scriptures, when it is recited to them, they fall down on their chins prostrating. They say, Glory be to our Lord. This fulfills our prophecy. They fall down on their chins prostrating and weeping, for it augments their reverence. Say, call him God or call him the most gracious. Whichever name you use, to him belongs the best names. And what's interesting is that it says they fall down on their chins prostrating. And if you see what it's like to prostrate in the Jewish tradition, is that they lay flat with their arms to, uh, out to their sides and their chins pressed on the floor. And God is acknowledging this, that they should read this Quran. And once they unlock this message, that they'll see that this is the book from their Lord, that God has provided them a scripture to enlighten them. In 1093, it reads, We have uh, endowed the children of Israel with a position of honor and blessed them with good provisions. Yet they disputed when this knowledge came to them. Your Lord will judge them on the day of resurrection regarding everything they disputed. God knows that this is a difficult test, just like it was for Pharaoh, just like it was for all the other recipients of God's messages. But if you're sincere, if you trust in God, if you unlock this message, put all the, the uh, hysteria, the baggage, the prejudice, the bias aside and look and read and see what does God telling you. 
And I guarantee someone who's of the children of Israel, who's sincere, will be able to unlock this message and will understand it better than many people who claim to be Muslim. In 2.120 it says, Neither the Jews nor the Christians will accept you unless you follow their religion. Say, God's guidance is the true guidance. If you acquiesce to their wishes despite the knowledge you have received, you will find no ally or supporter to help you against God. Those who receive the scripture know it as it should be known and will believe in this. As for those who disbelieve, they are losers. O children of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed upon you, and that I blessed you more than any other people. Beware of the day when no soul will help another soul, no ransom will be accepted, no intercession will be useful, and no one will be helped. In 398 it reads, Say, O Father of Scripture, why do you reject these revelations of God when God is witnessing everything you do? Say, O Father of Scripture, why do you repel from the path of God those who wish to believe and seek to distort it even though you are witnesses? God is never unaware of anything you do. O you who believe, if you obey some of those who receive the Scripture, they will revert you after having believed into disbelievers. How can you disbelieve when these revelations of God are being recited to you and his messenger is in your midst? Whoever holds fast to God will be guided in the right path. O you who believe, you shall observe God as he should be observed, and do not die except as submitters. In Isaiah 42.6 in the Bible it reads, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. It's interesting that God uses the term covenant for the people and the light for the Gentiles. This scripture, the Quran, was provided to someone that the children of Israel considered to be a Gentile, someone who had no scripture that wasn't part of the lineage of the children of Israel because they came from Ishmael's side. And this is a test. This aspect is a test for the children of Israel. Are they willing to accept this Quran that to realize that this is God's scripture to them, that's going to purify the religion, it's going to provide them tremendous blessings. But the question is up to them. In 6.158 it reads, Are you waiting for the angels to come to them, or your Lord, or some physical manifestations of your Lord? The day this happened, no soul will benefit from believing if it did not believe before that, and did not reap the benefits of belief by leading a righteous life. Say, keep on waiting, we too are waiting. And it continues in 6.159 it reads, Those who divide themselves into sects do not belong with you. Their judgment rests with God, and he will inform them of everything they have done. Whoever does a righteous work receives a reward for ten, and one who commits a sin is required for only one. No one suffers the slightest injustice. Say, my Lord has guided me in the straight path, the perfect religion of Abraham, monotheism. He never was an idol worshiper. Say, my contact purse a lot, my worship practices, my life, my death are all devoted absolutely to God alone, the Lord of the universe. He has no partner. This is what I'm commanded to believe, and I'm the first to submit. Say, shall I seek other than God as a Lord when he is the Lord of all things? No soul benefits except from its works, and none bears the burden of another. Ultimately, you return to your Lord. Then he informs you regarding all your disputes. He is the one who made you inheritors of the earth, and he raised some of you above others in rank in order to test you in accordance with what he has given you. Surely, your Lord is efficient in enforcing retribution. He is forgiver, most merciful. And just to wrap it up, Again, this is a message to the world, but specifically God is addressing the children of Israel numerous times, showing that, look, in your own scripture, you prophesied this book. Now it's come to you, 
and it's come in a formation that you're repulsed by. It came in Arabic. It's provided to the Arab people, people that you try to scrub out of your scripture. You try to make an illegitimate lineage from Abraham. Despite that, God is telling you this is the language he chose. This is the message for your people. And in 5.15 it says, O people of the scripture, our messenger has come to you to proclaim many things for you that you have concealed in the scripture and to pardon many transgressions you have committed. A beacon has come to you from your God and a profound scripture. With it, God guides those who seek his approval. He guides them in the path of peace, leads them out of darkness into the light by his leave and guides them in the straight path. God willing, we're going to finish with just one more verse that we read in its unity among all the submitters. Surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, the converts, anyone who, one, believes in God, two, believes in the last day, and three, leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at Cron Talk. And until next time, peace and God bless.